I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode is brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Check it out at boomboxgifts.com. I'm here today with Wendy Walker. Wendy is the national best-selling author of All Is Not Forgotten, Emma in the Night, and now her latest work, The Night Before. She has sold rights to her books in 23 languages, which I can't even name 23 languages, as well as film and television options. Wendy graduated magna cum laude from Brown University and Georgetown University Law School. Prior to her writing career, Wendy practiced both corporate and family law and worked as a financial analyst at Goldman Sachs. She currently lives in Connecticut with her three children. So welcome, Wendy. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. We were just joking about how both of us have been up. I was up last night with little kids. She was up with her big older kids. So, you know, we'll just put that as a caveat. It never ends. (laughs) We're both sleep deprived. (laughs) So please tell listeners what The Night Before is about. So The Night Before is about a woman named Laura who goes out on an internet date and never comes home. And then it's about her sister, Rosie, who looks for her the next morning. And it's also about a man who lies and who uses internet dating to lure women out on dates under false pretenses. But it is also about turning the damsel in distress theme upside down. So I gave Laura a backstory that's dark Mm -hmm. and filled with a little bit of anger and rage so that we actually become more afraid of what she might do to this man if she discovers he's lying than what he might have done to her. Excellent. You can tell right from the beginning. It's like thriller land. Like, this is amazing. You're like in it, you know, like... Like, my heart was going. For Good. The, like, I'm just, like, waiting for it. <laughs> so when Laura, the main character, was six years old, she overheard her mother say the following about her. She said, I don't know. She was just born that way, born with fists for hands. It's hard to love a girl like that. I mean, how gutting for yeah. someone to overhear that, even a character. <laughs> and, yeah. like, and yet, Laura remembers feeling what you said was a sense of pride that her mother had bothered to see me at all. I had always felt invisible to her, which is not what I expected her reaction to be to that. So talk to me about this and how you chose to set it up this way. Right. So I had to give Laura a backstory that would explain her anger and also her bad choices with romantic partners. She always chooses men who won't love her. So I did a lot of research on this psychology of why someone might be like that. And I then constructed a backstory in her childhood that needed to include stories like the one you just read. So her perception is not in realizing that her parents did something wrong. She just has the result of that, which is uh, these sort of attachment issues and anger. So when she reflects on these moments, it's not with a, a sort of informed reflection. It is an emotional response similar to the one she had as a child. So these, these little vignettes were really necessary to build this understanding of why Laura is the way she is and why this man might be in danger. Talk to me about the psychology. You just referenced the psychology of picking the wrong men, basically. And you're a former divorce lawyer. You are divorced. I'm divorced, but now remarried. Have divorced parents. Lots of divorce around. And Laura and her parents are also divorced in the book. Yes. And you write, it was undeniable that Laura had bad luck with men. For someone so smart, and Laura was that, if nothing else, she kept making the same mistake over and over. What Joe couldn't seem to grasp, the intangible thing he couldn't feel, was the reason why. This latest breakup was just a symptom or perhaps a warning. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) In fact, then Laura tells her therapist, Rosie says, I choose men who won't love me. I choose them because they won't love me. 
but why would I do that? So right. what's up with this? Why do women choose the wrong men? Right. Go from there. Okay, it's fascinating. So I, in all of my books, I do a lot of research. I read everything I can find on the internet, and then I actually find experts in the field to talk to me about my specific characters and how these psychological dysfunctions would play out in them. And so what is so fascinating about what this is what they call them attachment styles or attachment disorders as adults is that they almost invariably began when we were children. So we are sort of hardwired as we grow up. The brain is trying to figure out what tools we need to survive as grown-ups in our current environment. So when the brain is trying to figure out what types of attachments we need to get used to and we need to react to, it's taking in the stimuli from our environment. So if during that wiring period you have primary caregivers who are not giving you healthy attachments and healthy relationships, your brain will be wired around them to survive around them. And as a grown-up, what's so fascinating is that you would think that you would choose the opposite, but you don't because of these wires. So the perfect example would be someone who was abused as a child or witnessed abuse. You would think, well, you would go into your adult life and pick people who didn't abuse you. And you might try to do that, but there is something inside of you that is still longing for that familiar feeling you had when you were with someone who was abusive. The sort of excitement, then the fear, the terror, and then the resolution, and then the sometimes the warmth and lovingness that, that comes after it. And you inadvertently will search for that familiar feeling. And the other dynamic at play is that there's almost this inner child inside of you that still wants to fix it, that wants to find a way to make that parent stop being abusive. And because you were never able to do it as a child, when you find someone as a grown-up who gives you the chance to fix them and, and finally be powerful enough to solve that problem, it's, it's almost euphoric. So for Laura, she grew up not feeling loved by her father and being dismissed by her mother. So she inadvertently chooses men who create that same feeling inside of her that is familiar and who also give her this opportunity to finally be enough, to finally be whatever this person needs to, to give her love. And in the book, you get little glimpses into her therapy sessions when she was in New York before she went on this date that helped to explain and, and these dynamics. But it's really, it's so fascinating learning about this. It was one of the greatest parts for me in writing it. Did you know when you started the book that that's the psychological issue you wanted to include? Or how, what came first? So I knew I wanted to turn this damsel in distress theme upside down. Yeah. So I knew Laura had to have issues. She had to have anger and she had to have issues around relationships because part of the fun of this book is you get to be on the date with her hour by hour in her head, in first person, in present tense. You are experiencing her reactions to this man and the little bits of knowledge that she does have from her therapy sessions about, about what she might be doing wrong, what she might be missing, the clues. And so you get to live that with her. 
And so it evolved from there when I started doing the research of attachment disorders. And then it fits so beautifully with the backstory. And then I was able to weave in all of the little clues from her childhood and build that backstory throughout the book. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make you repeat that. Maybe I asked it the same way twice. Oh, sorry. Um, No, no, I asked you like the same question two times in a row. So, but you answered it beautifully both times. So thank you for (laughs) being so willing to do that. So Laura's sister, Rosie, is happily married, living in the suburbs with a toddler. And she gives Laura advice from her sort of more feminist point of view. And she says, you don't need a man, Laura, not for anything. And Laura thinks, at the risk of stating the obvious, it's easy to say you don't need something when you're holding it in your hands. She might as well tell me she doesn't need her coffee as she inhales her second (laughs) cup. So tell me more about that. And also how you feel like feminism, which is like all the rage, Mm -hmm. it's all everybody's talking about, is mixing with the sort of need or slash want of a man in your life. Right. So I think wanting a romantic partner has nothing to do with with feminism or any social issues at all. It's something, if you want to have a romantic partner, then you do. I think we get into issues that involve, you know, social constructs and feminism when a person doesn't have a choice and has to be with a romantic partner, either for financial reasons or because of societal expectations. So that's really not at play here. Laura needs a man because she has this dysfunction from her childhood. She needs love. She Mm -hmm. needs to resolve those issues to move forward with her life. She has a great job. She has an education. She has a loving family. And she lives in a society where it's okay to be single. It's okay to not have children. So the need is really not coming from any sort of societal pressures. It's coming from this backstory and these childhood issues that are unresolved. I just loved how you said that. People are so free with their advice, right? Yes. It's like, okay, thank you. Thank you for that. I don't know. <laughs> yes, and being a single woman, you, you, of course, you you feel that push and pull of why do you need this? And the answer is, it's not that I need it. It's just something that I want. And I think I am consider myself a feminist. I went to Brown in the 1980s, so I think that gives me some credentials in that department. And I'm perfectly comfortable saying what I want in, in terms of romantic relationships. Speaking of dating, let's talk about the internet dating (laughs) aspect of this Let's do that. (laughs) So you have this fictional website. I mean, I assume it's fictional. I didn't Google it, actually. Findlove.com, right? It is. Okay, good. All right. (laughs) Otherwise, how would you have picked it? So you say this, this site has no swiping allowed. Right. So let's talk about what you think online dating has really done to relationships and how it allows things like this to even happen. Oh, like, wow. What are your this could feelings? take up our whole okay. session. In, in, in a paragraph. In a paragraph. <laughs> so I have been single again for 11 years. When I first went out in the dating world, I was reluctant, but I did. I went on Match.com, eHarmony. Back then, there, there were no apps. And you had to actually sit down at your computer. You had to build a profile. And you could search for people based on things like, do they have a job? Are they still married? Do they have children? Where do they live? And so there was a screening process. And I actually met a wonderful man unmatched. We were together for for many years. And back then, the the danger really was that the person was lying. And I did encounter, actually encountered a professional con artist. No. Yes, it's a longer story, which I'll tell you another time, but a professional con artist. So you get wise to that, though, and you, you start to realize, okay, I need to Google this person or go on Facebook and just verify, you know, that this person is the person that he says he is. 
But now, what is so fascinating, I have reemerged and I have dipped my toe into the world of dating apps, which are on your phone. And it is completely different. And one man I spoke to described it as a candy store. And he described this temptation to always be looking for the new batch of people that were on your screen. You could swipe left or right, left or right. And then you swipe right and then you, you, become a, you get a face bubble. And he, he had screens and screens and screens of face bubbles. And it was so hard to choose. How do you choose? And then you go out on a date with one and she's nice, but you have a hundred other face bubbles and more coming every single day. And it's, they're just right there. So there's this illusion of an endless supply of attractive you know, potential partners for a date or whatever it is you're looking for. And I think that is actually changing relationships because you, you know, you have to have a certain amount of determination and a willingness to survive the bumps in the road. You might not like the person's dog. You might not like their house. You might not like the things that they cook. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. But the the fact that you can then go home and say, eh, let me look at my face bubbles. Maybe there's someone just like him who doesn't have, you know, these few things I don't like. Or maybe, you know, there's a woman who's more attractive than the one I just had a date with. She's not as good looking as in her pictures. It's just that supply that's there and it's always nagging at you. So it's like buying a sweater. Mm-hmm. You know when you go and you shop for a sweater and you'll be on a website and a blue sweater and maybe you go on J. Crew or something. Yeah. And you'll, there'll be 10 of them and you're, oh, you're trying to choose. You put some in your shopping cart and then all of a sudden, you know, it miraculously on the right hand side of your screen will come advertisements from 10 other websites with the same type of blue sweater because the computer is, (laughs) someone is watching you. And then it is, it's a candy store of sweaters. And I feel like the apps now are making it a candy store of people. It's so funny. A while ago, like when I was single, I had a friend from the finance world who used to say, you can't make, you can't make smart decisions without the presence of options. Right. Right. Like you can't, if you only have the one option, okay, I'll take it. Right. But if you have three guys you're out dating you can choose. But now if you if you perceive it to be limitless, right. That just like throws the whole equation exactly. I mean, then what do you do? I mean, and which is of course is not true. I mean, right. At all. <laughs> yeah, and actually it could probably create some sort of algorithm for this and or some sort of statistical analysis model, but yes, when there are always going to be 10 more people tomorrow on mm-hmm. your screen, how do you then limit those choices? Yeah. Because the choices are always changing. Yeah. I recently went online to help a family friend of mine who's turning 70 Aww. find some, and she looks like she's like 50. But I was like, you need to go on these sites. How can, you know, just try. Anyway, so I was like her Cyrano and I went on and I was like writing all these people. I love it. Like, <laughs> anyway, so I got a, I love that. I got a taste of what the current state of yes. apps and websites are like. And it's like, whoa. Meanwhile, all the 70-year-old men only wanted like, 50 or 40-year-old oh, women. Yes. I was like, seriously, like Stan yeah. from New Jersey is not going to meet my pretend personality? I was, yes. You know, like really good luck, man. Like, Yeah. <laughs> my friends and I, my single friends and I joke about it because men our age, I'm 52, sometimes we all get together and, and some of them will complain about how it's so hard when they ask whether he wants to have children. And we, you know, we all look at each other and say, <laughs> well, 
That's because you're dating 30-year-olds and you're 55 or 56 yeah. or whatever. And it, it is true. And that's where the candy store yep. situation, it really comes into play because the flip side of it is I have a male friend who actually has found that women use him for free meals. And so, oh, yeah. And so they will, you know, send, they'll communicate, they'll send more sexy pictures, and then they'll make a dinner reservation at like Jean Georges <laughs> and no expect him to way. pay. Yeah. And then he never sees them again. So it goes both ways. Yeah. It works both yeah. ways. No, no shortage of, of schemers out there. Exactly. So I was interested in the structure of your book. Mm-hmm. You used alternating viewpoints. First person, as you were mentioning, for um, yeah. Laura. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Yep, <laughs> okay, that's sorry. right. Yep. I'm telling you, the words are like not coming out it's of okay. my brain today. And you also have it take place over a short period of time. So yes. I felt like they were sort of like that show 24, like that same vibe where you're like yes. in it each hour. This is 48 hours essentially, plus some flashbacks right. over the course of several months. So how did you choose this particular structure for your story? So... You know, first I came up with this this idea of wanting to to go into the deception of internet dating, and then I decided to turn the theme upside down, and then I decided, well, how am I going to tell this story? Because I need to tell the story about the search for her, because mm-hmm. there's lots of fun stuff about how they go on yep. onto the app and they create avatars and all these things that yeah. I thought were so cool. I really wanted to use, but I also wanted readers to experience the date itself. So I I thought about all the different structures I could use, and I decided to just do this split time frame so that you could actually be with Laura the night before, which is where the title of the book came from, and you could be with her hour by hour on that date. And what it does is it creates this heightened level of suspense because you know from the start that she's going to go missing, that this date is going to go very wrong. So Everything that happens on that date, everything he says to her, every where they go, you don't know if that's the moment when it's going to happen, where mm-hmm. it's going to go off the rails. It, it just creates a, an automatic sense of apprehension and suspense. And then by splitting the time frame, you also get to go to the next character, Rosie. So you go back and forth with information now that Rosie doesn't have because you were just with Laura. You know why she parked the car on this one street and why her phone was found somewhere else, but Rosie doesn't. So then you you know, you know kind of want Rosie, come on, Rosie, yeah. figure it out. <laughs> so there's that. And then at the end of her chapters, she learns something new about the man. So when you go back to Laura, you have that same feeling like, come on, Laura, find out what happened, find out about this man, find out the truth. And so the suspense is just really amped up. And this is the first thriller I've written that has this level of breathless suspense. And I just, I just felt like the market was calling for that. Mm -hmm. And it was something I wanted to experience as a writer as well. And so you were not a writer for your whole life. You have no. had lots of different jobs, all very interesting. You started at Goldman. Mm-hmm. You became. You decided to go back and become a lawyer. You practiced. Then you were a stay-at-home mom. Then yeah. you even volunteered as a lawyer for a while. Then you went into divorce law. This is all yes. basically the story. And then you just decided you were going to be a writer. And then now look at you. You've like just done it. It's like, I'm so impressed. No, it's amazing. And now, so how, as someone who's starting out, now just deciding to be a writer. What did you do? Did you take a class? Did you research online? Did it just all come naturally to you? (laughs) How did you teach yourself how to write books? So I actually started writing when my first child was about nine months old. 
And I was taking, you know, quote unquote, a break from work while Mm -hmm. my kids were little. But I had what I refer to as a Betty Friedan moment. I don't know if you're familiar with it. So feminine mystique, mystique, exactly, which was, you know, started the feminist movement in the the 60s. And it's really about what happens to your mind when you've been, you know, educated and you've been in the workforce and then all of a sudden you're at home. And I knew I had to do something that I, I wanted to be home, but I had to do something that felt like it was leading somewhere. And I just came up with this idea to write a novel. I loved legal thrillers. I thought John Grisham was a lawyer. He's a best-selling author. You know, how hard can this be? And I should have taken a class and I should have actually learned how to use dialogue and narration because I spent three years writing a novel that had a great plot. But when I took it to a writing professor, I was told that I had to rewrite the whole thing because I had no idea what I was doing in terms of using these tools. And he was he was right. I knew it did not read like a novel. There were basic things that I didn't know, but I didn't know I didn't know them, like if what? that makes sense. Okay, so the best example is that, you know, chapter one, this mm-hmm. exciting thing happens, and my lawyer found the secret file. You, you know, it was mm-hmm. very Grisham-esque. But then in chapter two, he needed to pull his office mate in to this adventure with him. So he needed to tell her what happened in chapter one. Yeah. So I had, you know, five pages of dialogue where he is telling her and she's responding. But to the reader, that's boring because they already lived it. Mm. And he said, he said, no, you need to cut out those five pages and in one sentence of narration say, you know, Sam told Justine what happened in chapter one. Right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, right, duh, you know, but... I had never studied writing. So that was a wake-up call. I kept writing. It's actually, my my story sounds like an overnight success, but it was 17 years and then an overnight success because I actually published two books in women's fiction yes. before I went back to practicing law as a family lawyer. So, But those books didn't sell well. So I went back to practicing law and I gained all of this knowledge about psychology. And I also had this nagging feeling that I could still make it as a writer somehow. It was something I'd fallen in love with that I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. It had really just been an escape from my kids and let's see if I can do this. But I fell in love with storytelling and I realized that when I was practicing law again. So I kept writing while I was practicing law, wrote a whole other novel in women's fiction, found a new agent who then told me she didn't think she could sell it. And that was a moment that was so instrumental in how I view life now that, you know, some dreams aren't going to come true. And no matter how hard you try, you can, you know, I can start doing cartwheels in my living room. I'm not going to be an Olympic gymnast. I'm 52. That's not happening. So you have to also have real realistic expectations and pragmatism. So I decided I needed to just know one way or another. So I said I would write one more book. She suggested psychological thrillers. I had this knowledge of psychology from the last five years I'd been practicing divorce law. And I knew how to write a novel now. So everything sort of came together and I wrote it in two months and it sold at an auction and it my entire life changed. And I became an author, a full-time working author. That's so cool. I mean, it's just so cool. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, it seems to me very few writers have a straight and narrow path. They do not. It's, it's absolutely true. It's like, I have this book on a shelf. I tried this, it didn't work. Then I tried that. I thought I was going to do this and I did that. Like, it just, 
I don't know if other careers, I feel like other careers have a more they do. linear progression. They do. Like you start at this point, first you're an analyst, then you're an associate. Like right. it, it's like you just follow along. But yes, something with this creative, I don't know. Well, it's just such a an unstructured world. Nobody knows what's going to sell. The mm-hmm. market's always changing. Tastes are always changing. And so you and you have a lot of gatekeepers. So mm-hmm. you, you could you can get five degrees in writing, master's degrees and doctorate degrees. You can teach for years as you know, teach writing. And that's not getting you past the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. You have to come up with a book that they feel is current. Yep. And that's your agent. And then the agent has to go and sell it to a publishing house. Mm-hmm. So there are no like set of credentials or work experience that are necessarily going to make you eligible for the job. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Which can be like a job in the nonprofit world. When you- <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Depending on That's exactly right. right. <laughs> yes. So I know we're almost out of time. So are you now, do you have like 20 more ideas for thrillers coming down the pike? Yes. Are yeah. you already writing oh, your yeah. next book? I mean, I, w- I think I was born to write, write psychological thrillers. You're probably be- going to write your next book on the train on the way home right. today. You're so fast. It's well, like insane. So once I have the story and then I have the the basic outline, I write pretty quickly. But I already I finished my fourth thriller. Wow. So hopefully it'll be out next year. And this story came to me. And this is this is what happens with writers. You'll you just be in an everyday ex- event or experience, and you always think how it could turn into a thriller. Mm. So I was driving back from my son's soccer game uh, up in Massachusetts, and I was in one of these you know sort of remote, desolate towns, and I had to stop for gas, and I was tired, and the game had been a dis- you know just really hard, and they lost, and it was a bad ref call, and it was just you know my son takes the bus, so I'm driving four hours up and back alone. And I was just sitting there, feeling fatigued, and I saw this road that was going off between these cornfields, and I thought, what if I just walked away down that road, left left the gas pumping, left my wallet and phone in the car, and just started walking down that road? And then the whole way home, I started thinking about a thriller. Well, then I'd have to get kidnapped by someone. They'd have to come looking for me. Why would I walk away? I would need a backstory. So the book that I just finished is currently has no title. It started with that theme. So there's a, a woman with, with older children, and she doesn't actually walk away in that sense. But when I did my research, I found out that most adult women who disappear have walked away from their lives. Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. And they end up coming back on their own, or they are found many, many years later, but they left on their own. They just couldn't face telling people they were leaving. So I knew I had to write about this. So the woman is, she doesn't actually walk away, but her family comes to believe she has, so they stop looking for her. And then her daughter, who's a a 21-year-old adult, gets a new lead, a tip, an anonymous tip that comes in, and she decides to go back to this desolate town and find her mother. And I so I used the split time frame again. So you're with the mother. You know what oh, happened. You're with her and you know what happens to her. And you don't know exactly where she is or who's taken her. And then you're also with her daughter two weeks later when she comes back to try to find her. So it has that ramped up suspense again, but also these really interesting themes that I was able to research and bring into the book. That sounds great. I hope so. I can't wait to read that. So any parting advice to aspiring authors? Well, from my story before, I would say, you know, get your toolbox in shape, right? Learn how to write if you haven't done that already. Know your market. If you're 
going to create a new genre, um, if you're going to create a literary masterpiece, that's wonderful. But for most of us who are working authors in, in commercial fiction, you have to know the space that you're writing in because you have to get past the gatekeepers. And they are looking at what has sold and what the market seems to want. And that's those are the gates you have to get through. So you have to be a little bit pragmatic and smart. You have to think about the story you want to write and ask yourself why you want to write it. And if it's something other people are going to want to read. Sometimes we're driven to write a story because we have issues we want to resolve, but not everybody is going to get it. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a little, you know, a, a little self-reflective about your desire to write the story. But really, it's the tools. Understand your genre. Understand what structure. Know what the structures are. Learn how to use um, dialogue and narration for starters. And join a writers group or find beta readers who can give you, you know, really good feedback. And then just keep at it. Love that. Thank you so yeah. much. Thanks Thank for you. coming out. Don't have time to read books. This was <laughs> wonderful. Thanks. This episode has been brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Boomboxgifts.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.